Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hi and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. It is August 1805. Napoleon Bonaparte stands on the northern coast of France, looking out to sea for the invasion fleet that will carry his army to England. On the other side of the channel, Mrs. Susanna Middleton boards the ship Atlanta, bound on her first sea voyage. Dear listener, it is confession time. I am a devotee of Jane Austen, both of her books and the comforting slew of period drama adaptations. So how intriguing it was for me to come across a set of letters written by a woman actually living when Jane Austen did. A woman who, like so many of Jane's characters, danced at balls, dined with dashing officers, and gossiped about her acquaintances. Susanna Middleton was a twenty-something-year-old woman from a landed gentry background, married to a navy officer with noble connections. She is just the kind of woman who features in Jane Austen's novels. But unlike those novels, Susanna's letters reveal the dark truth of that much romanticized time. The disconnection between those living lives of rank and privilege, and everybody else. What also fascinated me is precisely when the letters were written. The whole of Europe was at war. Napoleon was seeking domination of the continent, and the very seas Susanna was setting sail on were a battleground. Along with her husband and three servants, she was heading for Gibraltar, a small peninsular territory on the southern tip of Spain. This was to be her first time out of England and her first separation from her family. She was especially close to her sister Marian, and she would send her lengthy letters describing her daily life, health, sights, and social engagements. They read almost like a diary, as Susanna would continue adding to them over days or weeks. Those letters are now held in the archives of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. There I sat and gingerly leafed through page after page of Susanna's correspondence, 
every large, crisp sheaf covered with her neat, cursive handwriting. She began writing almost from the moment she set sail. I was very sick again, she wrote on the third day of her voyage, and have been laying down almost all the morning. As to poor Betty, her maid, she has been upon the bed ever since yesterday evening, and Driver, her other maid, has only been up now and then to attend upon me and Betty and to feed the poultry. Their suffering was prolonged by uncooperative winds. I shall take the opportunity of letting you know how we go on, she wrote two weeks into the journey, which is but very slowly at present, for we have been from Portsmouth a fortnight today, and they say we have got over but one third of our passage, having had foul winds, except for two days the whole of the way. When the wind did pick up, it blew a gale, quite literally. For two days the ship was tossed about the sea like a toy boat in a tub. I could not move at all without being sick. I therefore only dressed myself and lay down again upon my bed, where I continued the whole day. I thought it much the safest plan, for everybody was tumbling about, and though I was very ill, I could not help laughing to myself to hear the different effects of the rolling of the ship on one side of me when they were all assembled at breakfast. Every kick the ship gave, away went all the cups, saucers, knives and forks, etc, etc, all to one end of the room, with two or three people tumbling after them. In fair wind, some ships made the voyage from England to Gibraltar in a little over seven days. But trapped in a cycle of foul winds and gales, Susanna's voyage dragged on for week after week. She had not been expecting such a long journey, and after only two weeks, her provisions were spoiling. The water is getting now almost black, which makes the tea and coffee so bad at breakfast that it is really difficult to get it down. As time dragged, Susanna's patience wore thin. If I sit long in any of the cabins below, it makes me half sick, there are such a collection of dreadful nasty smells. In short, we are all completely sick of living on board a ship. Yet seasickness and bad weather were not the only hazards of this voyage. Somewhere out there on the same sea was an enemy fleet. Since the French Revolution over a decade earlier, Europe had been embroiled in inconclusive war, but now newly crowned Emperor Napoleon planned to knock out France's oldest enemy by conquering Britain. In 1805, his armies were encamped on the French side of the Channel. Britons lived in daily fear of an invasion. The only thing keeping Napoleon at bay was the fact that his ships, and those of his ally Spain, were blockaded inside their ports by the British Navy. But in March 1805, a French fleet from Toulon slipped the net. Britain's most celebrated admiral, Lord Nelson, frantically chased them across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, but the French Admiral Villeneuve always stayed one step ahead of him. By the time Nelson reached the Caribbean, Villeneuve had turned back across the Atlantic and was heading for the English Channel to embark the waiting French troops. By August 1805, Napoleon had joined his army on the coast, expecting to soon set out for England's shores. But no sails appeared on the horizon. Villeneuve never arrived. The whereabouts of the French fleet was still unknown as Susanna's ship crawled southwards. And then, barely a week out of Portsmouth, disaster nearly struck. 
We had, likewise, a narrow escape from falling in with the French on the Saturday, as Captain Griffiths told me the day after. There were five sail of the line and two frigates very near us, but, owing to the thickness of the fog, did not see us. They escaped any further close encounters, and by mid-September, Susanna's ship was finally nearing the south of Spain. Yet these were crowded waters. Villeneuve's fleet had now been located, sheltering inside the nearby port of Cadiz, while the British fleet waited outside to do battle. The commander of Susanna's convoy, aware that he found himself at ground zero of an impending showdown between the enemy fleets, was reluctant to run the risk of heading into the narrow straits of Gibraltar. He was advised, Susanna wrote, not to venture up the straits till there was a strong westerly wind, which the convoy must wait for if it should be a month, or run the chance of being very much annoyed by the Spaniards' gunboats. We therefore lay at anchor for two days and nights. The wind changing a little, the Commodore made the signal to weigh, which we were all delighted at, but after sailing about, as if we were doing it for amusement for three days, we all anchored again in the same place. Susanna seemed doomed to an open-ended existence at sea. A week into this loitering, she and her husband were sitting upon deck, grumbling at our fate, and saying, we supposed our voyage must finish by our being taken by the Spaniards, for we saw no other finishing to it. When there arrived, a boat full of officers. They were saved. Among the officers was a Captain Dundas, commander of the frigate Nyad who was travelling to Gibraltar to fetch fresh water for the British fleet outside Cadiz. Learning of the plight of the convoy passengers, he offered them a lift. Just weeks later, Dundas would be asked by Admiral Lord Nelson to witness the signing of his final will on the eve of the Battle of Trafalgar, and would play a vital role in the battle itself. Not for the last time, Susanna was skirting around the fringes of history. The Nyad delivered Susanna to Gibraltar within hours. After five long weeks at sea, she had reached her new home. Gibraltar had been ceded to Britain almost a century earlier, and was now a key naval base commanding the narrow passage between the Atlantic and Mediterranean seas. Susanna's husband, Captain Robert Middleton, was the newly appointed commissioner of the Navy for Gibraltar, in charge of superintending the busy dockyard. This made him the most senior naval officer in the territory, and gave Susanna a ticket into the top echelons of local society. For the past month, her only society had been another couple the Middletons shared their cabin with, Captain McGregor of the Army and his wife. Susanna described Captain McGregor as a slim, smart-looking man, about four-and-twenty, a great puppy, and gives himself great airs. Mrs. McGregor is older and always giggling about nobody knows what. Of the two, Captain McGregor would draw Susanna's particular impatience. Just to give you an idea of his character, she wrote after landing in Gibraltar, he was, I believe, for the last three weeks nearly, brushing up his regimentals etc. he meant to land in, and as we were going into the bay, he dressed himself at least four times and was constantly at the glass admiring himself. I have heard of there being such empty puppies, but I don't think I ever met with such a one before. Her opinion of Mrs. McGregor softened when she learned more about her. The McGregors had only been married three months, and the wife was ten years older than the husband. In Gibraltar, Mrs. McGregor had several acquaintances who, 
have been very attentive to her, but they all pity her for having such a foolish young husband. What Mrs. McGregor herself thought of her husband, or what considerations persuaded her to marry him, Susanna either does not know, or does not conjecture. Mrs. McGregor would become a regular caller, someone who, in Susanna's new surroundings, counted almost as an old friend. But she soon also became acquainted with local high society, as a line of generals and their wives came to call on her. It is clear from her letters that Susanna never mixed with, indeed barely regarded, people lower than senior army and navy officers or their wives. With the exception of her own servants, she rarely even mentions people from other social classes. The letters make scant reference to Gibraltar's civilian population or of the garrison of thousands of rank-and-file soldiers. Those people she does encounter, who are not white or not English, are given short shrift with racist and xenophobic language. Susanna's distance from the local population was physical as well as social. The Middletons moved into the house designated to the Navy Commissioner, situated a mile out of town, about halfway up the rock that dominated Gibraltar. The house, now called the Mount, still stands today, albeit extended, since Susanna lived there. Susanna described it as a pretty-looking white house, with outside green blinds to all the windows. The house was surrounded by groves of orange trees, lemon trees and fig trees, and an array of exotic plants, from the locust tree to the American aloe. Walks in these grounds would become a fixture of Susanna's daily routine. Back at the house, the rooms were spacious and airy, Susanna boasting that the drawing-room alone had seven windows. A bright, airy house, built for comfort in a hot climate, surrounded by luscious grounds bursting of colourful citrus fruits. This was a far cry from the grey houses and grey skies of England. For her first few months in Gibraltar, Susanna could rarely venture beyond her own grounds because, shortly after arriving, she had a miscarriage. It was her second pregnancy loss in two years. She was in such pain and so weakened that for several weeks she remained upstairs in her bedroom. There she was attended daily by Dr. Pym. He was the favourite physician of the place, according to Susanna, and had earned respect for his contribution to curbing a yellow fever epidemic that had decimated Gibraltar's population the previous year. Yet despite his professional achievements, Dr. Pym's ministrations did not provide Susanna with any relief. While medical knowledge around pregnancy and childbirth was slowly advancing in this age, care for pregnant women was still rudimentary, and childbearing was extremely dangerous. So much so that childbirth remained the leading cause of death among women at this time. One day in October, Susanna wrote that she had Another violent attack of my complaint. Fortunately, Dr. Pym did not come near me that day, and I was in so much pain that I determined to doctor myself, and took when I went to bed some rhubarb and magnesia, which has done me more good than all Dr. Pym has done for these last three weeks. Thereafter, Susanna resolved to self-medicate her way to recovery. I am now taking quassia, a bitter plant used to treat fever, and brandy twice a day. That is, I make a teapot full and put a wine glass of brandy into it, for fear you should think I take too much of the latter. In addition, Susanna had turned to what was an extremely common form of pain relief in the early 19th century, laudanum. An opium tincture made up of 10% opium and 90% alcohol, laudanum was highly addictive. Perhaps most famously, 
Susanna's contemporary, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, consumed laudanum to excess, at one time supposedly drinking it by the pint. The severity of Coleridge's addiction was not yet public knowledge, but Susanna was already aware of the dangers of prolonged laudanum use. I am likewise taking, which I am now going to leave off by a drop at a time, ten drops of laudanum every six hours. I tried to miss it now and then, but I found that would not do, for I never was so well when I left it off. Over the course of these months, Susanna's letters focused on the physical aspects of a miscarriage. Only once she had regained her health did she allow herself to share something of her emotional pain with her sister. On the 28th of December, she squeezed in a last-minute addition across the top of her letter. I can't help thinking how differently I expected to be employed about this time. In March, she wrote, I sincerely hope that I still may have some healthy children to live, but it was really heartbreaking to lose the second. Over the weeks that Susanna suffered her miscarriage, devastating battles were fought at land and sea. While people across Europe mourned sons and daughters sacrificed to war, in her house on the rock in Gibraltar, Susanna mourned her own private loss. It was a loss she had to come to terms with for a time, largely without her husband. The British and Franco-Spanish fleets had finally met in battle off Cape Trafalgar on the 21st of October. A victory for Nelson's fleet, albeit at the cost of Nelson himself being killed, vanquished Britain's fear of invasion, but many of her ships were crippled by the effort. It was to nearby Gibraltar that the battered fleet limped in late October. The arrival of so many ships needing urgent repairs, and of hundreds of wounded sailors needing care, kept Captain Middleton extremely busy. He is really almost employed from sunrise to sunset in the dockyard. The arrival of the fleet did more than keep Captain Middleton busy. The influx of sailors with time to kill while their ships were repaired, coupled with the relief and euphoria of a battle survived and won, prompted a dizzying round of celebrations. Susanna was not well enough to attend these, but she eagerly picked up the gossip. I hear of their being very gay in the town. The governor is giving balls every week, plays by the officers, and card parties every night. A card party might sound intimate, but could in fact be a large and lavish affair. Captain M was invited to one tonight, where we heard there were a 110 people asked. In early December, the first winter ball was held, or rather, was endeavoured to be held, as very little dancing was actually achieved. Captain Fremantle and Captain Mundy, veterans of Trafalgar, and, one can only assume, keen to let off steam, spent the week prior to the ball, going round all the single ladies to spirit them up to mutiny. For it seems, the rules of the balls are for the married ladies to stand according to precedence, and the single ones to draw for places and stand below the others. This, Captain Fremantle told them, was shameful, for it would never give the single ladies a chance of calling a dance. A decade earlier, the ancient social system of France had been overturned, and thousands of aristocrats had been sent to meet Madame Guillotine. Now the single ladies in the little territory of Gibraltar were ripe for rebellion. They threw off the tyrannical yoke of their married sisters, and forced them to draw for places just the same as them. But the married ladies were not going to surrender without a fight. The most senior amongst them, a grandmother no less, stepped forward to lead the countercharge. In the ordinary way of things, she stood at the top of the line, but had now drawn lowly place number 38. This, Susanna heard, made her so angry that she insisted upon standing at the top. This made a general confusion, and even some little girls, the youngest in the room, were pushing to get to the top. 
It could be a farce straight out of Bridgerton, as women, young and old, shoved and elbowed each other for the prime positions, the ball descended into anarchy, all to the amusement of Captain Mundy, who, having weeks earlier survived a battle at sea, now enjoyed his view from the sidelines of this battle of the ballroom. Susanna was amused by the accounts of the first winter ball, but they also reinforced her wariness of entering into a society which, for all its loftily ranked members, she regarded as inferior to the set she would usually mix with at home. However much she disapproved of Captain McGregor, when he told her he never saw a more vulgar set as in Gibraltar, she could not help but concur. I hardly ought to give any opinion about the inhabitants, as I have seen so little of them, but Mrs. Drummond, who is by far the best of the ladies that I have seen, is certainly not a little vulgar. But enter high society, Susanna eventually did. Her health restored, in January, she attended a grand ball held in honour of the Queen's birthday. Through her letters, I was able to follow her into the ballrooms of Austin's day, but also through her letters, I was reminded that, had I lived then, I would likely not have actually been permitted entrance. There were a curious mixture of people, Susanna wrote about her first ball, as everybody was invited, and even the smartest ladies were dressed in the fashion of about two years ago in England. The chaos of the first winter ball was not repeated. Out of over 300 guests, Susanna was asked to lead the first dance by the Governor of Gibraltar, General Fox. The governor was the highest political power in the territory, and the favours he granted accorded the recipients a particular social distinction. Susanna was honoured indeed, for she had travelled to the ball in the general's own carriage, and was whisked through for an audience with him as soon as she arrived. After some small talk, General Fox said he thought the sooner the dancing began the better, and begged that I would begin it. As if by word of command, Susanna was promptly spirited away through, I believe, a dozen rooms and passages, all very prettily ornamented with coloured lamps and transparencies, till at last we got to a very large lofty room, which was the dancing room. At one end was a large CR in coloured lamps, and was lighted besides with three large chandeliers. The CR stood for Charlotte Regina, wife of George III. The dancing got off to an awkward start when Susanna found that Gibraltar's musicians were not au fait with the latest hits. After asking for two or three dancers that they knew nothing about, I was obliged to have what they could play, and we began Speed the Plough. There followed a happy yet tiring night, as Susanna observed the fashion to change partners every dance. She spun around the floor with naval captains, with Dr Pym, and with the general's aide-de-camp. She did not record whether she danced with her husband but there was certainly no shortage of prospective male dance partners. Rather the opposite. Being a military garrison and naval station, Balls and Gibraltar suffered a sorry-looking surplus of men, prompting Susanna to write that there were many young midshipmen and officers that were obliged only to look on and long to have a dance. Having finally dipped her toe into society, Susanna's social engagements that winter followed thick and fast. She accompanied parties on excursions up the rock and even over the border into hostile Spain. In February, she attended a masquerade. At a masquerade, party-goers donned fancy dress costumes with the aim of passing unrecognised for as long as possible. Susanna elected for an outfit she deemed the least conspicuous without being very dark, a black dress trimmed with pink and a black velvet hat with pink and white feathers. Others put in a considerable amount of effort, and it was particularly popular to dress up as less fortunate members of society. 
There were several characters kept up very well indeed, particularly a man, draped as a fishwoman, selling sprats and cockles. He had not a mask on, but disguised himself so much that nobody found out to the last who he was. Dr. Pym threw himself into the event with particular gusto. He had three characters in the course of the evening, all which he kept up very well, and very few found him out. Masquerades were in vogue, but weren't exactly a regular occurrence. A more frequent event in the social calendar was dinner with friends. In March, Susanna shared of Marion details of a specimen of a grand Gibraltar dinner she attended at her neighbour's. There were fourteen of us. We went to dinner at five. The courses were fifteen, and fifteen with three removes to the top and bottom dishes. For the first course, the principal dishes were two soups, two fishes, roast beef, roast turkey, and ditto pig, ham, and chickens, besides others to make up the number. Second course, woodcock, partridges, etc., etc. Not much signs of starving, you see, with a dessert of about twenty dishes. After tea and playing at cards a little while, there were brought in lemonade and cakes, and after the cards were over, there were cloths laid on the four card tables, a tray put upon each, with cold chicken, savoury jellies, and all sorts of good things. All this eating was done in about five hours, with only an addition of about seven people to the dinner party. Occasionally in her letters, Susanna asked Marion to send her household items she could not find in Gibraltar, items like tooth-cleaning powder and stain remover, but food and entertainment of all kinds were not in short supply. Gibraltar's high society in the winter of 1805 to 1806 emerges in these letters almost as if it existed in a bubble, touched by war and disease, yet engrossed in a spirit of party while we can, for who knew what lay ahead? For Susanna and Robert, the future held two more years in Gibraltar. After their return to England, the couple would have ten children. They would never live abroad again. Yet for now, in the first months of 1806, Susanna's life was a dizzying whirl of balls and dinners at the farthest end of Europe. Meanwhile, across the continent, Napoleon was tearing up the map. When his invasion fleet didn't materialise, he had turned his army around and marched east to confront Austria and Russia. After victories at Ulm and Austerlitz, by the spring of 1806, Napoleon was master of half of Europe. Austria accepted peace, and the Holy Roman Empire, which had held the German states together for a millennium, was dissolved. Hearing the news of Austerlitz, William Pitt, Britain's Prime Minister for most of the previous two decades, is supposed to have pointed to a map of Europe and said, Roll up that map. It will not be wanted these ten years. Pitt died shortly thereafter, in January 1806. Susanna, on hearing word of his death the next month, described it as terrible news. It is one of the very few occasions over those six seismic months that she directly commented on events in the wider world. And yet those events rippled across her life. They shaped her experiences on an almost daily basis, from near run-ins with French ships, to dinners with survivors of battle, to the fact of her having to live in Gibraltar at all. No wonder, then, that someone saw fit to preserve the fifty-five letters Susanna wrote to her sister from Gibraltar. They are a record, the only record, of this life lived in very extraordinary times. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. 
I'll be back on Thursday 3rd of February with a story of seduction and scandal in Edwardian high society. Please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would also be fantastic if you could spare just 30 seconds to rate the show or leave a review on your favourite podcast app and share the podcast with your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau, with very special thanks to the advice and input of Tess Noah Asfau. The letters of Susanna Middleton are held at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, Ominous by Kevin MacLeod, Scully's Reel, Mrs MacLeod's Cooley's Reel by Slante, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.